Hi, I'm Timothy Fitz, and this is Systems Live. That was the real one. This is our intro. We're starting. We're, We're going. So bad at We're 15 this. minutes late. All right, quickly introduce our guest. Um, so we have a guest. This is our first guest. We've never had a guest before. It was a lot of work. Uh, his name is very interesting. It's Daniel X. Moore. The X is important. He's, I don't know how to describe him. Interesting. Eccentric? Eccentric. Uh, quite yeah, with the question the, mark. Uh, that's the polite way to put it. And and that was his voice. So, uh, and this is me. And <laughs> so we've <laughs> so we've got him here. He's been here the whole time. Uh, and and he, we're we brought him on the show to talk about. Well, you, you say here. Where are you right now, Daniel? I'm in Fillmore, California, connected via Skype. And, and where is Fillmore? Uh, it's the middle of nowhere. Actually, it's in Ventura County, uh, north east of LA, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, may- I'm not sure how east it is. It's north of LA. It's a, you're in a vaguely defined location. Yeah. LA is a pretty big place, so it might just be straight north of some parts of it. I mean, I, I lived in I lived in Long Beach, but I tell everyone I lived in LA because even though I lived in Long Beach, I still think of like literally everything surrounding LA is just LA. Yeah. Pretty much. I think so that yeah, it's uh, north of LA, south of Santa Barbara, Southern California, where all the bros hang out. Which is the perfect place to uh, to make your headquarters. Yeah, it's uh, under the radar. So we got a we got a bunch of different things that we want to talk about. Hmm. But well, start talking I, about them originally. Well, we want like a table of contents. So a couple of things. One serverless architecture, just a word that you started throwing around, and I started throwing around, and decided to throw it around on this podcast. Right, and as soon as I saw serverless, I'm like, but something listens to a TCP socket. Like, like serverless has to have a bunch of different potential. We'll get to that. It's it's an interesting <laughs> term. Stop. Uh, <laughs> we also wanted to talk about. What's going on in Daniel's life? How he's how he's conducting himself as a as a programmer? Eccentric? Eh. As an eccentric, yeah. yeah. As an eccentric, but you uh, gotta get the like rising voice. Like it's a question. He's an eccentric. I'm. I'm. Yes. So what was the other thing? Oh, recently you may know Daniel from his work with uh, Matt DeBolt on Hamlet. Hamlet, which yeah. is. Rocking the charts at News YC. Yeah, it was uh, up there for a little while. Is News YC the like cool way to say hacker news? No, it's totally it's totally billboard. Like it's it's commercialized, mainstream. What's what's happening now? So should we start with serverless architecture? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was the idea. I wanted to you know that's that's what I wanted to talk about. So we should at least okay. you know get in there. Get in there with that. So Daniel, yeah, give us give us a, a definition and an overview. Okay, so yeah, I was working at uh, OKCubit Labs last year, and we made a lot of web apps and mobile apps and a bunch of stuff. And as the web expands and sort of Rails expands and all these like web frameworks, you eventually reach a point where, especially if you have mobile or other clients, like the actual web framework part of it kind of gets smaller and smaller 
It's just a bunch of client applications talking to resources on the internet. So the actual So you mean like you mean like REST APIs? Yeah, basically. And even like cross domain, cores, all that other stuff. It's just publicly accessible internet resources that may or may not be online at any given time. Talking with static and by static I just mean HTML and JavaScript that lives on the client. However it got there it doesn't really matter. So, so when you're saying serverless, you kind of mean like you don't think about or run a server? Uh, like web serverless, I guess I would say, in that you don't have a server whose job it is is to spit out HTML and JavaScript. Could I call this the cloud? Uh, you could. A lot of people have called it a lot of things. But... I'm, get, I'm getting in the habit of just using the word cloud in place of the word internet because it just yeah. makes you sound cooler. Uh there's a good Chrome extension called Cloud to Butt. It just replaces the word cloud with the word butt. Is it, uh, is it related to the, to the Bitcoin to Buttcoin plugin? Uh, maybe. I don't know. That sounds like a good one, too. <laughs> but anyway, back to this uh, butt or cloud as it is known. Uh, so in these sort of the actual web server itself would take on a smaller and smaller role, especially with... Uh, service-oriented architectures and other things like that. The actual HTML-generating component of your app living on a server somewhere starts to approach zero. Well, so, I mean, and I remember a few years back, it actually became, people were kind of thinking if this was the trend to do your front-end completely separate as standalone sort of, you know, JavaScript, HTML Piece that was uh, that would then talk via APIs, um, you know, using AJAX. Back when people would talk about AJAX um, to to a backend, um, and that was kind of and you could imagine in that case the web server isn't really doing anything other than just exposing this API. So the idea has been a- around for a bit, but it wasn't. Most apps still aren't built this way. You still have things yeah. like Ruby on Rails and stuff where you're still generating, you know, server side stuff to spit out. What's kind of interesting to me because I'm seeing the the opposite, like in the mobile gaming world, especially like everyone just uses like Parse or a similar service where you just get oh it's Mongo in the cloud, and the client starts writing to the cloud things that look like database queries. Yeah, well, I, I, but I think that's the like the trend. I think maybe what's kind of leading to a, a world of of serverless architecture is that the ecosystem of services that you would use to uh, as as backends, right? You have more and more things that are sort of backend as a service, which is kind of what I would describe parse and some of these other things. And then you have all this other kind of a ubiquitous, like GitHub Pages for static hosting and uh, and uh, S three. S three, yeah, yeah. I think uh, the thing about it is you wouldn't even necessarily have a backend, but your app could be an amalgamation of many different backends and many different services, using them as they're available and as they exist. Right, so that's that. Seem that to me seems like a pretty key difference. Then, because of everything else you've said so far, sounds like thick client versus thin client. That's yeah. yeah. That's what I was describing earlier. Is but, it's, but it's different because it's no longer like giant mainframe and then like single consumer client. It's a client that talks to a distributed host of services or microservices. Yep. Interesting. And then the microservices, because each one could be so small and simple, another provider could throw one up there and replace one if it goes out of business or it has downtime or something like that. Are, are you, you imagining a different owner? 
Yeah, are you imagining there that like we would like like a, a someone with like an S three clone API? Yep. Basically, you could take the same thing, throw it in another bucket, and then have a whole another interactive website that does a very similar thing. So in this case, the application pretty much exists solely as a more or less HTML page. Yes, or at least the application the client experiences. Although it doesn't have to be HTML, that's just what exists in the world, so it makes sense to use. Right. That's interesting. So, and and like and like you said, the difference between I guess what I was thinking about before is that you're not actually writing that backend API. You're actually leveraging all these third-party services. Um, and and I think so that so now that there's all these sort of backend as a service third-party services that you can use, as well as a lot of stuff that's been written in in JavaScript in the browser. Like, for example, you have. Um, uh, we were just talking about a project um, that's implementing Git in JavaScript, which is really interesting. Stuff like Node.js has kind of caused a lot of people to start writing JavaScript implementations of things, which is really interesting. Um, yeah. So, 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 uh, do you want to tell us how this is like? So, what have you been doing with your life uh, these past few years that is is sort of so focused on serverless architecture? Why do you think about it so much? Okay, yeah, so uh, as I said earlier, I was working at OkCupid Labs with a bunch of smart people doing like the classic web developer thing. Uh, And then in like July last year, uh, that kind of all fell apart. uh, And a bunch of people were then doing other things. And so I had a lot of free time to look into like really pushing this to its conclusion and really figuring out how would this work? How would it be implemented? what's something simple I could do to kind of explore this. And I started out with a self-hosting gist editor. I'm going to post the link in the chat. And the editor would... It was just a static HTML page that would load a gist from the GitHub gist API, have a text area, you could edit that gist, and then post it back uh, to the GitHub gist API. So then it could edit itself and slowly get better and better. And eventually, that uh, editor became a... I had to migrate it to a Git repo once it had like a bunch of files and I wanted better diffs and version control. But at, that editor has a single unbroken chain to the editor I use for most of my projects now, which is hosted on GitHub Pages and publishes itself and other apps like it to GitHub Pages. So I actually followed it out and... Did these things so so you've you've taken this this serverless architecture and sort of self bootstrapped a self-hosted development environment for building serverless serverless uh applications yes yeah. as an eccentric it is my duty <laughs> um I, uh, I, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I was working on a kind of self-hosted uh, editor as well that was kind of getting into some of these ideas, but I think that your, your approach is really um, uh, a little bit more interesting than what I was doing because it's, it's, you're actually building out uh, a development environment to, to build entire applications, and you've actually uh, kept up with it. And so now, if I recall, you actually have kind of like a a, a fairly... It, you said you actually do most of your development in this environment, right? Uh, yeah. So I've written maybe like 100 GitHub 
things in it, a bunch of different tools I needed. One was uh, client-side require that was like pure client-side without Node.js at all, and a bunch of different utilities like a color picker, pixel editor. Uh, a lot of the Hamlet stuff started out, or actually the Hamlet stuff started out on the server, but I used it in this editor as well. So it's just a bunch of kind of an experimenting experimental area for all of these types of like really focused serverless client apps. So how do you um, how do you package those up and how do you combine them? I mean, you're starting to get to the point where you're almost it's almost like you're building a an operating system for uh, a serverless yeah. cloud. Yeah. So part of my inspiration was like Unix based ideas and command line and operating system stuff. And I also used uh, NPM as a somewhat of a guide for packaging it, even though, I mean, I guess there's trade-offs involved in that, but I did the simplest, stupidest way possible where whatever code you have in the editor, it compiles it all down to HTML and JavaScript, and then it packages it up in a JSON file and posts that to GitHub Pages. And so then you can load that JSON file and you have a whole app. And then apps could have dependencies and those are just the same JSON structure but under the dependencies uh, node in that file. And so it can nest as far deep as it needs to go. So it's interesting that you actually have to, because of this architecture to live in this this world, um, you kind of have to reinvent a lot of stuff, right? Yeah, there's not a lot of existing tooling to do exactly this kind of thing. Though it's kind of nice that there's actually a lot of stuff in in JavaScript now. Um, like for example, the 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 uh, I think we're talking about this, right? The Git uh, library. Yep. Um, yeah, I was able to use a lot of uh, existing tools, if not directly, at least as inspiration for talking to the GitHub API and you know just making web requests and simple things like that. So, um, uh, how would you how would you compare some of the? Because I, I think there's some overlap with, for example, what's going on with web components and some of the stuff that you're doing once you get to sort of the uh, you know kind of re- recombining these little applications. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. So I think web components uh, is going to be a key part of this type of application in the future because it gives you a safe way to embed other functionality within your app and it sandboxes it and gives you the security you need whereas without that if you want to include third party components in your app you're exposing yourself to a lot of trouble especially if your client side apps have enough power to publish to GitHub including a third party component is kind of a big deal so it seems like uh, even though people people might not even realize it, but we're basically trending towards a world where what Daniel's doing is is um, so, sort of <laughs> there's enough infrastructure that it, 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 it it's so easy that you might as well just that's kind of the natural thing people want to do once the infrastructure's there. Once you have web components and you have all these kinds of backend as a service. Um, and probably not too many people are, because you know a lot of people are doing stuff like this. But I think Daniel is one of the few people that's actually uh, spent the time to really kind of prove it out as a as a concept and take it all the way um, to you know doing this whole sort of self-hosted bootstrap development environment, proving that you can actually build 
uh, applications that you can that can build themselves uh, in, in this architecture. It's really yeah, pretty in cool. a very hostile environment. <laughs> yeah, I I wanted to sort of talk to that. There's there's like a couple trends that I'm seeing, and I'm I'm really curious uh, what your take on this is. Like one is how we build mobile apps is influencing how we build web apps instead of the opposite direction. Um, so, so the like single sort of static, it's not a binary, but it's pretty close to it that you download and then you run and then it talks to servers and it's, it looks a lot more like an app. And then at exactly the same time, we have like ASMJS and native client and WebGL sort of enabling the like richer, more heavy, uh, computationally expensive um, polished experiences that you can do on on uh, mobile. Do you see that as like mobile is going to eat web, or web's going to eat mobile, or they're just co-evolving? Uh, I think it's definitely a co-evolution because there's always going to be like different form factors: desktop and mouse, or mobile on a very small screen, or even tablets. And so it's just as the web evolves there's a lot more constraints and a lot more challenges if you want like what does it even mean to have the same app on a phone as on a website they can have totally different interfaces and totally different capabilities and so the constraints of mobile shaping the web i think is important because mobile is sort of like back when your internet connection was very unreliable you might have no connectivity for days but you still want your app to work collect data interact with stuff and that's helping influence the web because then you can have interactive JavaScript apps that don't need to talk to the server every time you refresh the page. And so it's just like a co-evolution, different constraints, driving different uh, benefits. So one thing I've noticed is that mobile is, is evolving and iterating way faster in terms of like what frameworks come with mobile, um, which like is an obvious benefit from the sort of walled garden single owner dictator approach versus open standards. Do you see web sort of revol- uh, evolving in response to that? Uh, yeah, I think my hope is that uh, the web itself will eventually win out over all of these app stores, walled gardens and things simply because uh, the cost of gatekeepers is a pretty big cost for communities to pay. Uh, and so uh, as sort of a uh, someone who believes in the democratic nature of the web, I think it uh, would be hopeful to see that happen. But there's a lot of big companies investing in a lot of various options, so I'm not quite sure how it'll all play out. Yeah, and sort of the other side of it is um, as a programmer, which is better, like... I feel like the web is evolving incredibly, incredibly slowly. I mean, the specs you're talking about, I was reading four or five years ago, something like that. You're talking about web components? Yeah, web components. Like, they they take forever. Um, whereas, whereas like, in a mobile world, it's like, oh, hey, there's a new OS that has these new features. It's out in six months. Oh, it's out in six months. Now you can use it. You can rely on it. Um, and well, so I was... You could still use it in six months, but not every user of the mobile device will have access to that, and it will still limit... Uh, your market. It's so like iOS 7 market penetration might not be 100% yet, even if it has all these new features. Yeah, but in two years it will be. Uh, but that's among iOS users, not among millions or billions of people in the world. So like among the elite uh, <laughs> technology circles, yeah, you can do that, but among the billions of people in the world, it's probably going to be web or Android or something. 
hopefully web. Though I, I, you know, I think things have gotten a lot faster for the web with Chrome mm-hmm. doing things like auto updates and browsers basically saying, "Well, I have an implementation; I'll put it in my browser," and so other browsers have to, you know, kind of catch up. And then, so the the fact that iteration is much faster in the browsers has allowed a lot of these things to come out and evolve quite a bit quicker. Yeah, I'm pitching. I'm pitching continuous deployment as continuous integration between different entities. Um, whereas like continuous integration is internal to an entity and you, you can easily see that in Chrome like the, their use of continuous deployment means that we can integrate with their new APIs faster which means that we can live in the future faster right. and they get feedback faster and make changes faster yeah and when you're continuously deploying on top of their software then you have like that feedback cycle in reverse and, and as you see more companies sort of adopt this mindset you're going to see the higher level interactions between entities go faster and faster and faster yeah, I think though with the new feature uh, penetration issues is that even as the web and mobile release these new features, you still have to have fallbacks and backwards compatible implementations and either graceful degradation or other ways to accommodate clients who just don't have those capabilities. And it's a problem that will continue to exist for as long as new features come out. Well, it, it seems interesting that I've seen, I don't know why I didn't, uh, I, I guess when I started doing um, this weird sort of self-hosted editor stuff, I was doing it for music things. I was using some of the like new MIDI APIs and stuff that are showing up in browsers. And that was the first time I ran into uh, what was called a polyfill, which is kind of interesting because I've always been around these kind of fallback uh, mechanisms, but I've actually never uh, had never heard the term polyfill in, until then. Uh, and so now there's actually polyfills for pretty much every web technology. And even though they're, you know, n- they don't necessarily implement things across all browsers, you know, older versions, um, it actually fills out. It allows people to actually build stuff and. Uh, and not worry about it only working for one browser. You know, it'll work at least for a handful of browsers. So it's yeah, kind of... It's, it's definitely getting a lot better these days. Yeah, so it's it's just interesting that the, how the ecosystem is, is evolving and things are getting quicker. I, I mean, there's so many things. Like, there's, like, all the, the MIDI stuff uh, and, and audio, like, that just kind of came out of nowhere. I was like, when, when, when did browsers start being able to do this? Yeah, gamepad support that just works, like, yeah. and, and on a Mac which is yeah. hard to do. <laughs> hey, I actually uh, implemented a browser plugin that did that a few years ago. Thankfully, I was able to give up once uh, the browser support came in because it was a nightmare <laughs> doing that. So so uh, that kind of reminds me, you, you worked on a pretty ambitious project. It wasn't quite serverless architecture, but uh, it was actually uh, a browser-based game editor engine Yep. Uh, called Pixie Engine, with also with Matt. Uh, do you want to describe that real quick? Because that was something we didn't have on our list, but it's definitely one of the yeah. cooler projects you guys have worked on. So I guess that kind of started seven or eight years ago. And actually, speaking of this kind of web stuff, I made a pixel editor that worked in the web browser about seven or eight years ago. And it was just using, like, HTML5 didn't exist yet. It had a PNG library, so you could build a binary PNG in the browser. This is before all of this, like, array buffer stuff. Like the library was from 1999 at like University of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Some guy just built this, and I like used it, and I could generate a PNG, write a data URL into an image because I think we still had those at the time. Yeah. Those were just coming out, and uh, 
So I, you could build a pixel editor in the browser. And that was like eight years ago. And so I kind of followed that up and said, okay, what types of things do you do? Could you build a game editor? Could you build a development environment? Uh, how much can you actually get into the browser? And my goal was everything, which might have been a bad goal because uh, it got really complicated. And sort of going through that project and that seeing everything get so complicated and trying to cram it all into one, it was like a giant Rails app, which was the classic way to do it at the time. It's just, oh, throw a bunch of stuff into a Rails app and then have a bunch of JavaScript and a bunch of server code. It just seemed uh, insane. I actually went back to working on it this last week, uh, yesterday even. And that's when I realized uh, web apps are dead. It's over. Because I went back to that coming from my self-hosted editor and it's even just setting up your dev environment locally like with a web editor you just go to a web page and your dev environment's done so yeah i love i love that aspect of it like enforcing that everyone's development environment is exactly the same Mm -hmm. and and just guaranteeing uh, and set up instantly yeah it doesn't take you three days to set up your dev environment yeah, I so at Imview we um we we measured uh, the time from like new hire to first successful push, um, and like we we started timing it because it had gotten to almost a day, uh, which is considered good. Uh, yeah. We got it down to like under an hour, um, but it involved like having IT come and flash your computer the day before you show up, and like a lot of a lot of manual work to get that to go pretty fast. So there's actually a uh, um, somewhat popular because it's used by a bunch of stuff. It's called Nitrous IO. Have either of you guys heard of this? I have it, not. It, it used to be called I think it used to be called Action IO or something like this. And there actually might have been some other alternatives to this, but it's basically uh, a uh, development environment, hosted development environment uh, in the cloud. Um, and there's lots of there's been lots of kind of variations of this, but basically it comes with a full IDE uh, and then uh, uh, as well as a <laughs> server that you don't have to manage it manages it for you. And then it's collaborative, so people can kind of sign in and use the exact same development environment. And it's got chat and all this stuff kind of integrated, so it's a it's a real like collaborative development environment. Um, and and you know there's been a lot of stuff kind of like this throughout the years with people kind of playing with the idea of pair programming and and all this. But this seems like one of the newer um, kind of iterations of pulling everything together. It seems to be uh, used quite a bit by some uh, yeah. popular people. Um, but you've been doing this for a really long time. I, this sort of thing, um, and uh, you've always been doing it as kind of open source projects. Um, how do you, I guess, how do you feel about these kinds of commercial entities kind of doing a similar thing, but not quite, doesn't quite necessarily have the same entire vision as what you have? Uh, I think we'll see a lot more of them as time goes on, because it's an idea that's just about its time has come. So I think in 10 years, it'll be obvious everyone's going to be developing through basically a web browser or something. Because why would you spend, why would you download VMware Fusion and eight gigabytes and set up all this stuff, and when you can just go to a web page, start developing, hit run, see the changes, and then push it live in ten seconds? There's just no alternative. So I think in ten years it'll be obvious, but until then, a lot of different companies and a lot of different open source or commercial projects 
will be trying it out just because the tools are available to start doing it and to start doing it well. So, so what is your place in this ecosystem and why have you been doing this? Uh, let's see. I guess it was just of interest to me to really... Actually, going back to the very kind of my first uh, goal is as I work on software, the goal of software is to help people do something or to enrich someone's life in some way. And so the part of your application people interact with is the user interface. And as a developer, if you care about how people gain value from your application, eventually you'll spend some time working on the user interface. And in today's world, most of that is JavaScript on the web. Like the interface most people interact with on a daily basis is HTML and JavaScript. So I figured if I work backwards from that, then what type of tools should I build? What type of environment should it be? Do you, where do you think this work is going to go that you're doing? I mean, obviously there's going to be other people that are going to kind of rediscover a lot of these ideas and kind of do it on their own, maybe not even knowing about some of the stuff that you've done. Um, What do you think is going to happen to your work? Uh, I assume it'll probably fade into obscurity and maybe be rediscovered by a historian, but uh, I mean, kind of, kind of a, I, kind of almost like a, a Doug Engelbart kind of. That's the that's the most eccentric response you could have given. By the way. <laughs> yeah, I was trying. I was thinking about how to make it uh, sound really depressing and eccentric, but actually, yeah. like on a positive note, I'm sure, like people will see it, the thoughts will influence them. Uh, they might be aware of it directly or indirectly, but it's definitely. I'm just one person working on something that's ripe to be worked on what with the internet infrastructure and all the tools and technology that exist today so sort of related to um to this idea of of ease of accessibility for programming um we're starting to see this weird divide especially among younger people where they have phones and tablets but that's it and there's no real development environment there. And I don't know about you, but I got started in programming because I had to like open up QBasic and then, or GW basic and then like load the game file. And you know, you're like intimately exposed to code by accident, just by existing in the, you know, computer world in the late eighties, early nineties. Even if you wanted to play a game like on DOS, you'd have to go into a directory and like run a game file. And even if you don't know anything about, programming or computers you're still like in the file system doing commands and before that you had to buy books and type in the code i'm happy i missed oh, yeah. out on that but oh, and man. actually on some of those dos games it has like in the instruction book on how to install it. it's like okay you copy over the files on the disk and you have to like change some setting or like do something specific for your computer so it will run and that was kind of cool yeah the like settings menu is a constants file in the yeah, and like the instruction book tells you what you're supposed to do, and you just have to open it up and change it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I got into programming because I, I um, when you would quit, you would you would basically you know hit the break button because there was a break button back in those days, and yeah, it would it would something. Yeah, yeah, and it would pause into like whatever line was running, and I like I just saw lives on screen, and you know like five year old me went, I bet I can cheat. <laughs> That's, oh, yeah. <laughs> that that was that was the start. Yeah. So yeah, actually I think that's a good point because today, especially with mobile and these kind of walled garden developer environments, like if you want to develop for iOS, you need to own a Mac, probably own an iPhone, 
have a Mac developer license. So that's looking like a $2,000 outlay at least. Yeah, and that's for the cheap versions of everything. Yeah. So like, if a kid wants to get into programming, he's going to have to become from a very wealthy or privileged position. And it's getting worse, I think, rather than getting better. Although with the web and JavaScript, you can go to any web page and you open up the console and you can start messing around with stuff. So I think maybe on average, it's about as easy to get exposed to it. You just have to kind of know where to look. It is, it is a little confusing because $2,000 to, to start developing sounds really expensive, but the flip side is that's the reality we all grew up in. I mean, our computers were, were $2,000 in 1993. Like, they were not yep. cheap. Yeah. So, like, it's not... But you, you, you say it's gotten much worse, but... And I guess it depends on, on the school that you went to, but, like, you know, schools were starting to get laptops... Uh, not laptops, but, you know, computers... They would have things. Yeah, that's that too late. Expose. I don't. I don't want you to be. I don't want you to have your first programming exposure in in high school or college. What about elementary school? Yeah, some it doesn't happen. Is. It's very rare. I mean, you'll have computers, but not access to the software because they're locked down. Yeah, they don't want kids going on the internet or something. Oh yeah, these days. But I mean, back in the day, like it was yeah, all. It was Apple II, so yeah. it, it, you would you would start the computer and it'd be in a, in a basic prompt. Yeah, our our school, whatever whatever thing they had to lock out internet websites it was like control shift escape four was the sequence that turned it off which of course everyone knew i i don't yeah, yeah it was so kids would just guess it by messing around you know <laughs> they learn anything yeah I'm a two-year-old and she's taught me gestures on the iphone and stuff i had no idea it's like i didn't even know the device could do that and she learned it and taught me like like drool into the headphone port to to make the screen look funny. No, just like simple like hand gestures. <laughs> like you swipe it a certain way and like it goes to a certain menu. It's like I've never seen that before. Yeah, there's a lot of like like four finger gestures and stuff that are real weird, or three finger gestures. So how do you so there, this this work that you've been doing has is pretty time consuming and it doesn't sound like it's commercially viable. Oh, yes. not at all. If you tell someone, I'm going to make a system where everyone in the world could have it for free, they say, let me not invest in that. <laughs> so, but I guess my question is, uh, how have you been able to do this? Where, how have you been able to find the time and, and all okay. that? Yeah, so I had previously, I guess over the past decade or so, been working on and off at various startups as a software engineer, saving up money then leaving for something else or taking some time off and running out of money and then working at another job, saving up money. And so over the past year or so, I, or two years ago, I guess I moved to San Francisco and got a job at OkCupid Labs. And that was like pretty cool. I never lived in a big city before. And it's great, you know, talking with a lot of smart people. But then nine or 10 months ago, I moved to Southern California because San Francisco was really expensive. And at that time, I didn't have a job. So I had saved up. Actually, living in San Francisco, you can't save any money at all. It's a sad truth, no matter how big your salary appears. But so I was like breaking even living in San Francisco, had some money saved up, uh, then moved back to Southern California and lived much more cheaply. uh, And over the past year or so just really kind of got into these projects and it is kind of an expensive hobby if you look at opportunity costs what else have you been doing uh i've been also uh farming a little bit growing some orange trees trying to uh so you know that game harvest moon where the kid 
goes to like a farm and has to fix it up. Yeah. Um, did you mean Farmville? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you know that game Farmville on Facebook where you get like points and stuff happens? <laughs> I get like a point every time I chop down a tree and uh, then I tweet it to all my friends. So it's addicting. Does, is that uh, why you do it so much? Kind of. I mean, I'm learning a lot about trees. Uh, so How many trees have you chopped down? Uh, probably a couple hundred. So, I mean, the various sizes. Some of them are just like eight feet or ten feet tall. Some of them are, you know, three feet across maybe. But usually I'd uh, work together with my dad or something and for the large ones. So why Actually, are none you... of them, none of them have been three feet across? That's huge, like a foot, like eighteen inches, twenty four inches. Yeah, I mean, we just assume that you were adding a few inches to the yeah. size you were giving us. Uh, so why are you chopping down trees? What's the? Uh, so yeah, you know that game Harvest Moon where that kid goes to a farm. Uh, I moved back home to Fillmore, uh, where I have a family farm, and this about forty acres of it or so. 20 of which are in severe disrepair. So say you have a bunch of orange trees and you don't take out the weeds or don't tend to it, in 15 years you'll have a lot of other trees growing there. So uh, that happened, and now I'm cleaning it up. Wow. So you're, you're chopping down all the trees that aren't orange trees? Yep, pretty much. But you're leaving the orange trees. Yeah, and they actually come back uh, pretty strong. A lot of them have still survived. <laughs> So how was the learn, tri- uh, You learn a lot about kind of distributed systems and things. With all the weeds, you have to attack it at multiple levels simultaneously. You know, take out the seeds, spray so they don't grow any further, and just keep uh, maintaining it constantly. And it teaches you a lot about software and affordances. So, so to get this straight, you went from living in San Francisco working for startups to living on a farm chopping down trees. Yeah, and writing open source. Eccentric, yeah, an eccentric recluse. And it's still a little bit too uh, busy on my street for me. I have neighbors within, like, there's probably 10 or 12 neighbors within a quarter mile, so it's quite noisy. Well, you are aware that um, if you're not rich and you're an eccentric recluse, you're actually, you have a disorder. There's, there's something uh, wrong with your brain. Well, but if you're rich, then I, it's fine. I'm wealthy <laughs> enough that... I mean, I wouldn't say I'm rich, but I, so I'm not destitute, I guess, is, is what I'll say. <laughs> I mean, we can judge you until you've clearly made enough money that you're allowed to be that eccentric. Uh, I'm probably not allowed to be that eccentric yet, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's okay. I'm a recluse, so no one knows. So what, what led you to this, um, what I would call alternative lifestyle for a programmer? Uh, let's see. So I always, I guess growing up... Uh, on a farm originally, I actually am living in the same house I lived in until I was five or so, and then I moved uh, to Ventura. But just sort of having this uh, available to me, and uh, my dad's getting quite a bit older now, and he's been farming this for the past 30 years, so it's kind of the family business, I guess. And then... Uh, in school, I really liked programming and computers and technology and things, so I did that for part of my career, but now I still want to come back and kind of learn all the stuff about farming I didn't get into as a child, so I have to relearn you know, how to use a chainsaw and how to chop down trees and all kinds of stuff. I'm, I'm going to teach my kids when they're five or so. 
Uh, my two-year-old daughter has a plastic toy chainsaw that kind of runs and makes sounds. <laughs> she loves it. She says, Daddy, I'm going to go get my chop on. <laughs> puts on her headphones and then, or her like earmuffs and ear protection and then starts going around pretending to chop down, you know, uh, those giant cardboard tubes and over her trees. I love the safety first attitude as well. Yeah. You got to teach, I mean, so that's the funny thing about software actually and back to affordances is like it, in computers with version control you like can't make a bad mistake that you can't recover from usually unless you have production data in which sometimes you can but with a chainsaw and like farm tools and sort of out chopping down trees you definitely learn how to really pay attention and some mistakes can be pretty serious so it's like a whole different world yeah, I, I almost feel like our industry is like really lazy compared to other industries when it comes to safety and, and things like that. We're just like, eh, whatever. It broke. Yeah, it's like, what the, what's the worst that can happen? I have to roll back and do it again. Yeah, and, and then you look at like manufacturing. It's like, what's the worst that could happen? Well, a person could die, and that would shut down the production while like there's an investigation, and it's kind of bad when people die. Yeah, it'll bum everyone out for a long time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that when you talk about safety, and you're just like, "Well, production will be down for a while due to a death. That's the downside." Uh, like, yeah, like this, it, this could just go so much more horribly wrong. Um, yeah. Although now, now we are really seeing software start to move into places where you know weapons and automated driving and drones. So I think we'll, yeah. I think we'll see software engineers kill their fair share of people in the next few years. I'm sure they already have. The software's been around for a long time. That's actually... So this is a super huge segue for no reason. Um, like, one of the more interesting ethical implications of open source is that someone can use your open source to go kill someone. Uh, how do you feel about that? Uh, I mean, I guess Alfred Nobel felt various ways about people using dynamite, but, like, when you develop technology, I think it's... As long as your your technology has, like, if it's any good technology, it'll have positive and negative uses, and it's really up for society and the culture we live in to provide the support necessary for people to make good choices in using it. I think just preventing people from using it isn't really a sane way to do it because someone else will invent it soon enough. Well, it's interesting. We were talking, you mentioned affordances a few times, and I think part of building technology is kind of building uh, an experience or a story around it for how it can be used. I mean, that's kind of a, an important thing when you're, let's say, building an open source piece of software is actually telling the story of like what it's useful for. Um, so it's kind of interesting that there's, you know, there's when you, as a technology developer, even though things can be used for evil, you can always try and at least get people to to think about how to use it positively. But when you're actually building something intended for evil, it's it's kind of not really relevant. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. Have you written software that could be used to kill people, Timothy? Hmm. Good question. Well, I mean, like, what if you write an abstract database? Sure. I, people working on Linux. Absolutely. There's tons of embedded devices that, that run Linux and kill people at the same time. Um, but I was, I was talking to someone who specifically worked on vision software for a, a DARPA project that most likely is now used in things that automatically target, which is 
really scary to think about that like you you unwittingly or unknowingly had a hand in that um and i i agree like like there is like a an inventor is not necessarily responsible for what people do with their invention but then there's also the other side which is like we could make licenses that say like you're not allowed to kill people with the software and then what how would that restrict open source and how would that affect the cultural and economic dynamics so a, a four clause bsd there is there is actually a license out there that does this i forget what it is but uh it caused a bunch of problems because yeah the four clause bsd is probably not compatible with the three clause bsd which then you're back to like gpl versus bsd issues all over again so uh daniel what were the emoticons how come i see those in oh, yeah. every single commit so uh one of the cool tricks I learned is you can just add emoji into your commits and GitHub does it. So whenever I... So in my online uh, editor, the part that publishes to GitHub, I don't actually keep... Like, you don't have so much control over the Git repository. Every time you hit save, it just makes a commit. And so you don't have to manage it yourself too much. Uh, but the part that saves, I have an emoji generator. Just pick two random emoji and throw them in there. And then it... <laughs> kind of makes each one you can get a visual distinction of how they're different you know or which one's the same commit so there's actual uh at least some functional value in them a little bit of functional value it's better than it it's better than it just automatically saying automatic save number yeah seven two yeah those are like the gravatars that they auto generate that are based on your ip or whatever yeah Interesting. Wait, so so you're you're living a, a fairly different lifestyle now. What's what's a day in the life look like, and and how? I assume you're doing a lot more physical exercise, cutting down trees. Has that affected your lifestyle? Uh, yeah. So previously in my job as a typist, I wouldn't get out so much. Uh, but actually, like having to lift a chainsaw and chop down a tree, you get quite a lot stronger, quite a lot faster. So I've been. Uh, in much better physical shape recently and actually the days when i get out to work like every day in the week i usually feel better overall that week so i think i'm now getting enough exercise i could probably do with some more still but so i still spend a lot of time on my uh computer projects in the afternoon and it gets too hot all right so are, are you tanned and ripped now uh, I mean, let's. I wouldn't go that far, but I'm less <laughs> pale and less bony than I've ever been. <laughs> I just shared a link to one of your repositories just so people can see your. It's oh, it's yeah. great because the for for each of the files it actually shows, you know, the last commit message which has your your emojis in there. Yeah. So that. Uh, GitHub organization you linked has a bunch of the ones I built on this tool, and I have a few others on uh, my own personal GitHub. Do you uh, so so? How did where did Hamlet come from? Uh, let's see. So also about a when I was working at OkCupid Labs, I was working on like we were doing a lot of. Uh, sort of client-side apps and kind of rich, interactive, and you want to use, you definitely want to use like Haml or Jade or uh, any one of those kind of compiles to HTML languages. And alongside, you'd want to use a CoffeeScript or some kind of compiles to JS language. And if you have style sheets, you want to use some kind of compiles to CSS language just because 
those languages are so good now and so reliable. They really do provide a lot of value to the programmers. So you actually you use time. those quite a bit, like CoffeeScript. You you pretty much program yeah. exclusively in CoffeeScript, right? Uh, yeah, most of my work these days is all in CoffeeScript. I do a little bit of Ruby. Uh, I'm learning a little bit of Haskell on the side, but yeah, most of my projects are all CoffeeScript. And so when you're like, especially coming from the Rails world, uh, the default is CoffeeScript. Uh, I'm not sure if they've made. I don't think they've made Haml the default. They might eventually once DHH comes around, but. Uh, I is it default make, like SAS uh, right now? It's, it's still it's, not CSS it's though. CSS, I think, oh, okay. is the default. So it's like close. And so I think I don't. I don't think they have a default templating one yet. But sort of the trend of web developers overall is to move sort of one layer up in all these languages. And as you're doing that, uh, you can find a lot of tools that sort of solve one piece of the problem, but they don't assume that you're going to be using CopyScript, or they don't assume that you're going to be using some kind of interactive data binding or they don't or they only assume you're going to be using plain html so you have it gets like a little convoluted if you want to use coffeescript and knockout or if you want to use uh coffeescript and uh react or any of these other templating languages so the origin was what if i could have a templating language like haml that would automatically be aware of when the data model you gave the template had properties that were observable and could update them for you and could bind it for you because the template knows you're using CoffeeScript. It knows you care about observables, but it basically just looks like Haml or something similar. And that was kind of the genesis of the idea. When was that? Uh, I think that was almost a year ago, probably like July of last year. Because so, the, this data binding stuff, it, it, it's kind of neat just how like everything had, had evolved. I remember during that transition where data binding had just come out with, uh, what was one of the first data binding frameworks? Daniel, you'd probably know best. Yeah, I think uh, Knockout was the one that yeah, it was one of the big really popular impressed ones. me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but now it's sort of everywhere, and it sort of be, is becoming the standard way to do uh, data and, and JavaScript apps. Yeah, I yeah. think everyone's starting to take it for granted now. It's like, oh yeah, of course you'll have some kind of data binding. It's like that's obvious. Yeah, it seems weird to me that that um, all of that is happening at a JavaScript level and not a browser level or a standards level. Um, uh, but it, it makes I mean, sense. It can't though. Like even if it happened at a standards level today and it was released tomorrow, you still have to support all the browsers that are out there. So you definitely need to be able to polyfill and fall back as far as you need to go. Well, the the building blocks of this things like observable and and that those are becoming standardized, right? Those are uh, yeah, I think ES six and ES seven are taking a lot of cues from this as well. Right. So like eventually it'll be a standard, and maybe in ten or twenty years, when that finally hits the mainstream, you can switch out your library to a roughly equivalent standard one and gain some performance benefit. But until then, you want to use it, so you have to do HTML JavaScript. Yeah, one thing um, I was talking about on Twitter with uh, Eric Florenzano. Um, in the gaming world, all of the UIs are written on top of toolkits that then use OpenGL or DirectX or one of these 3D libraries instead of like a DOM or an HTML model. And you could do that today given WebGL. Um, if someone does that, if someone writes like a decent uh, presentation framework that doesn't touch the DOM at all, 
would would that have higher velocity? Would that be interesting? Would that be heretical to the internet? Like, what are your thoughts? Uh, I don't know. I think some people are actually working on things like that. Uh, I saw something just today. There was a uh, WebKit renderer that renders the DOM to WebGL and embedded <laughs> in the browser. And so, like, there are definitely things that are rendering user interfaces direct to WebGL. But then, if you do go that route, then you have to re-implement like, all the stuff in the DOM. Like, what happens when you hover an element? What happens when you click it? How do you bubble events? How do you bind events? And so, there's yeah. a lot of work to do. Plus all the accessibility issues, and printing, yeah. and browser <laughs> window resizing. Yeah, no, I, I can't even imagine the number of problems. But it seems to me that, like, having a consistent rendering engine across multiple browsers that's not really tied to browser version would, yeah. like, it could be huge enough to win. Uh, I think there will probably be something like that that exists, and it'll have some uses. Uh, like, if you need something that's... Well, games are games are going to have one no matter what, yeah. for sure. Well, a lot of games also just embed WebKit or something and render a DOM. I mean, not all of them, but some yeah, of that's, them. Yeah, I mean, IMV went that way, for sure. I mean, we were embedding Firefox because, you know, 2007. So that would be, like, like a WebKit that's overlaid on top of the rendered OpenGL, or...? yeah. Yep, that's ex- yeah, that's exactly. So then, it is. so then your UI is is just HTML and JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you run MView today, there's a whole bunch of like there's there's like a, a 3D navigator that widget that lets you uh, move the camera and stuff, and that's overlaid over 3D. That's that's C plus plus and OpenGL. Which you know, people that have experienced that seem to swear by it, but it doesn't seem to be very popular in the game industry yet. Well, Maybe increasingly yeah. so, but. It's strange that you mobile know, people... sort of shot that in the foot because going mobile means you have to be way more performance aware, and you um, can't like the compositing is expensive. Yeah, and the separate processes or separate um, memory pools, multiple languages, and, and bundling WebKit's fifty megabytes. Yeah, when we bundled Firefox, I think it was like thirteen or fifteen, and the that was like a significant hit to to the um, number of people who went from starting to download to actually logging in successfully. So just people dropping off because of the download size. I love that you guys could just see that in your metrics. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like, going back to continuous deployment, just really quick, we shipped just Firefox. Just, like, embedded Firefox. I forget. It, maybe it did something like a one-pixel-by-one-pixel black window, but maybe we didn't even run any of the code. And that was, like, day two of the one-year project to rewrite all the UI. So you actually embedded it before you used it. Oh yeah, to to see like what would happen. I mean, not just not just download numbers, but performance issues and things like that. Right. I think people don't people really underestimate like how iterative you can be about most things, and I think people kind of forget that when it comes to continuous deployment, and continuous integration, or iteration, or any. Of it. I mean, the, that iteration part is really key in being able to know you know, how to break things down into, oh, well, we can just do this one step. And actually, I usually, I, I've become to kind of think like this, right, is think about iterations. What's the simplest, easiest thing to move forward? And, yeah, the word I like to use is embryonic. And a, a lot of people, embryonic? Yeah, what's the embryonic version of the future you want to build? Build that, then build one tiny piece, one tiny piece, yeah, one tiny yeah. piece. Kind of like a self-hosting gist editor almost. Yeah, and then, and then you turn that into the next sublime. Which uh, maybe yeah. <laughs> one one commit at a time. Um, but what's interesting is how much like resistance I get from people. They're like, 
why even bother with that step? Let's just build the thing. You know, it's like, yep. it's it's actually kind of fun. And I guess it's just because they don't understand. They don't see the value in doing that. Um, but it's very frustrating. Yeah, having having done that on a couple projects, I'm at the point where it's like I would never not do that because every time I do it, I learn about a thing that would have shot me in the foot later. Yeah. And when I don't do it, I get screwed, and I'm like, how how could have I prevented this? Oh, embryonic amendment. I mean, I actually uh, made the mistake with Hamlet. I built the product before launching it, so that was kind of backwards, but sometimes that happens. Yeah, I mean, APIs and frameworks are really weird because there's, like, there's a social issue to the launch, and there's also, like, you want one good consumer while you're building it, like, in parallel. So you're building it for a specific person, and all of those, like, weird weird economic, socio-economic issues. Uh, seem seem to make the the iterative embryonic approach sometimes a little detrimental, but you can still do it embryonic and iterative. You just have to do that like internally. Yep. Today I was thinking. Uh, I, was, uh, I was thinking about because I, I remember at some point somebody asked me like techniques for programming or debugging, and um, for some reason I just kind of. I don't know. I have I haven't really thought about it, but um, one of the things that I've kind of learned I've seen other people do and I've and it was kind of really inspiring to see them do is just to like um, first of all when when you want to try something like try it uh, in a separate project like so you remove all other factors so you can see that that just that one thing works and it's always like the simplest thing like hello world and I guess you know a lot of programmers get this it's like start with the easiest thing like get get you know these things to interact and then iterate from there. But for some reason, people don't make a connection when it comes to, like, the delivery of, of a thing, like, actually releasing. I guess that's the difference is one is you're, like, messing around messing around in development, and the other one is you're actually kind of messing around, quote-unquote, like, with production. I guess that's what scares people. Yeah, yeah, the implications and the risks. Hmm. Well, I think a lot of it also of trying to get the smallest and most iterative way to go is a risk reduction technique. But I'm not necessarily sure that for every type of work, you would want to get feedback and iterate. You might just want to go way off on a tangent, go as far as you can go, and then see, like, where do you end up? What's it like? And that's more of an exploration than a product. And explorations can be much more risky because you might end up in a terrible place and no one would ever want it. But it might lead you eventually someplace better. And if you're always just trying to reduce risk and get the feedback, you're going to be focused in a very narrow area that you might that might block you out from other places to explore. Yeah, it's a little weird because often you can take a hybrid approach where you're like, look, I'm going to spend six months on this project regardless of the feedback. I think there's something there and people won't get it. And then you can still do it embryonic and iteratively and request feedback. And then maybe you're just ignoring 80% of your feedback because you're like, okay, you don't get it yet. When you do, it'll be amazing. Yeah, there's definitely uh, room for both approaches, and it's probably healthy as an individual to take both approaches, uh, at least you know some of the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of like if as long as you're going into it like having sat down and gone, oh no no, this method is the best method for delivering the software, like because I thought about it. That that seems like the best way to go because sometimes sometimes you're right. Sometimes it's like the main line because you know exactly what you need to do and exactly how to get it done and other times you have to go really slowly and embryonically because you're like this is all brand new territory 
I guess, uh, Daniel, most of your work is pretty much all exploratory, right? Uh, I mean, so there's definitely that editor thing, which I kind of went off on and built over the past year without very much feedback at all, not trying to... uh, And I'd show it to a few friends and get some comments, but really I'm the only user of it at this time. And so I was just exploring, like, what would it mean to have this type of system? And along through the process of building it, I discovered a lot of interesting things that where if I got feedback, I'm sure most people would say, I don't like that that stupid. And, you know, it might just bum me out and I wouldn't do it. Yeah, Yeah, I can relate. We both both have quite a bit of experience, um, not necessarily building stuff, but interacting with the indie video game scene. And most of their like sort of like implicit social policies and social structures are built up entirely around supporting each other through that sort of like shitty time. Um, because like going off and doing your own project alone is just like, you're going to think that it's the worst idea ever half the time. Oh, and it's risky. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then having that support network can, can mitigate some of that risk and also like bring down your, your emotional level and, and also let you see that, like, oh, everyone else who I thought was amazing is also freaking out all the time and yeah. worried that yeah. their stuff sucks. So um, I don't, I don't mean to turn this on me, but this kind of reminds me of a, a thing that happened recently. I sort of had kind of like an existential breakdown recently, a, a minor one, like not a major one, but it's related to this, this you know, kind of a lot of the decisions that led me to Austin and doing all this kind of other interesting stuff other than software, but. Um, I'd re- I'd re- I've realized that recently I had kind of been overly consumed in a lot of my you know software technology projects, which is actually really terrible because it means when things are really stressful or whatever, it's like you don't have the perspective or the balance to kind of keep that from really getting you down. Um, and so one of the things that kind of bothers me is is when uh, you know I'm trying. To build all these kinds of components, you know, again, this kind of trying to take something to its furthest conclusion uh, in this kind of infrastructure and containers and service and architecture. And I have a particular way that I'm trying to do it. I'm trying to build all these pieces. And t- actually, today I found a, a great word that I didn't know that, uh, uh, what was it? Was anybody? Oh, disaggregation. Which is, you know, it's what a lot of people kind of do once they understand a problem. They'll be like, okay, now let's actually, now that we understand the problem, we can break it down and solve these problems independently, which allows you more flexibility in terms of what you're able to accomplish with these little pieces. Um, and uh, and so that's kind of the approach that I'm, I'm taking. And then, you know, it's all trying to build up to something that, that doesn't exist yet or, or trying to get to a particular, you know, ideal end state or world, you know. And along the way, luckily, like this kind of, you know, when you're doing uh, stuff like Daniel, what you're doing, um, there's other people doing it, but it's a little bit more fringe, you know? It's like there aren't too many people like, you know, like I mentioned, there is nitrous or whatever, but, you know, it's not like super mainstream, like it's getting there. And so you're sort of like, you're, you're on the more fringe side of right at the edge, right? And I felt like I used to work in a space that was way more fringe, like webhooks and all the stuff where I was like, nobody was doing this and I had to build, I mean, and, and you know, you that's kind of the world that you do live in, Daniel. It's like you have to build a lot of this stuff because it doesn't exist. 
But in the, in this containerized world, because of it being really popular now, Docker being out, and there's kind of being this this machine. Um, there's a lot of people looking at this problem space, and and that's kind of the thing that I really hated about technology, because it means that nothing that I do is is um, terribly unique. You know, it's like if I try and solve a problem, it's very likely somebody else is going to be solving that problem. Uh, and if they solve it close enough, like why why did I even bother? Why did I waste my time doing this when I could have been you know doing something more interesting, creative, or whatever? Um, and so right now I'm in a weird position because a lot of my work is kind of being uh, duplicated by other people that are you know entering the space and starting to think about the space. Uh, and it's really demotivating, you know, because people you know, it's sort of like, oh, this thing came out, and you know, it's it's kind of like what you're doing, but when I look at it, it's, it doesn't it doesn't like fit the path to where I'm going, and so it's annoying that there's this thing that's distracting everybody from the the path that I want to go to. Um, anyway, but it, it's just kind of like really, uh, it, it bums you out, you know. And I yeah. think the, the the lesson that I had to what, what's kind of nice about like just being in isolation, <laughs> like <laughs> basically like what you're doing, is is that you just keep going. You know, you don't let any of that stuff bother you, and you just keep building it. And then you know, if you ultimately make something that's like really cool or or valuable or whatever, like um, it won't it won't ever get done if you don't if you get too bummed out to to finish, right? Yeah, I think a lot of it is uh, kind of an artistic courage where you're working on something, you're not sure if it's going to pan out, but as you're building it, you start to see things like, yeah, this is working, Yeah, this is interesting, it's going to an interesting place. I have the courage to stick it out and see how far it goes. Right. And that's, yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's weird, though. I don't, you know, I, I think the three of us, because we do kind of more creative or almost it's almost artistic i think for us in some of our our work obviously with games it's it is a little it's and it can be a mix you know they're business and artistic um but you know it just doesn't feel like that's how most engineers kind of operate because they operate in the structure of you know companies that are trying to solve problems and get things done or whatever and like i get that but you know i'm <laughs> it's just a different if it's a different set of motivations or something it's different something yeah it's like a sort of higher level systems transformation as opposed to what can i get done today you would say how can i transform the system today so in the future the things that i would like to get done are easy to do right exactly i mean it's this kind of long term thinking of, of like this is the ideal place that i want to be it's you're you're thinking about the you know it's idealized design yeah i mean i i when people ask me like why continuous deployment why am i into this and i'm I'm, like kind of bored of it by now at this point like i I do so much of it all the time but at the end of the day like i don't ever want to work for a company that's not doing continuous deployment ever again and so like that's my mission is to make sure that like other people have the good experience that i did and i don't ever have to have the bad one again yeah actually with a lot of these ideas you kind of know early on if they're gonna be good or not i think uh, scott adams wrote something once good ideas start out good and get better and bad ideas start out bad and stay bad like as you're working on something like the very first like on that self-hosting gist editor is just like one document dot write 
just as a kind of proof of concept. And it's like, yeah, this worked. I can load a gist and write to the document. And then from that point on, it kind of like, it was working. Like that idea has, it was enough to spend a whole year like working on other things related to it. Yeah, that's true. It's like when you find something that, that seems right, like early on. It's a gold mine. Yeah, it, like John Blow mentioned that when uh, in any game the movie, and he's talking about Braid. It's sort of like you know just the initial like concept. He prototyped it, and from then it was just like you know maximizing that experience. It was very easy to just kind of it was it was a good idea from the beginning, you know. And I guess not 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 everything is like that, but when something is really good, it seems like it's very obvious from the beginning. Yeah. For sure. And then there's this weird part where, like, sometimes good things happen because you you worked really hard on something that you thought was good, but no one else did. And that's always... Because then, like, so everyone else is like, oh, it was terrible for two years, and then suddenly it got good. It's like, no, the good part had been there the whole time. You just hadn't polished it enough or marketed it well enough right. or phrased it or... Yeah, it just wasn't delivered in a way that people could understand. Yeah. I mean, I mean like, I am view its V1 was, like, roughly the same as its current version. Like, it had chat, you could move around, it was 3D. And so it's, like, basically the only difference between that IMVU and today is, like, polish and just, you know, building building bullet point features and, and marketing the shit out of it. Um, obviously, like, it looks a lot better, but at the end of the day, all of the concepts were there in the original, and only a few people got it. Yeah. I don't know. It makes me. It always makes me wary to like listen to other people's success stories because of that. Because it's so hard to like really put yourself in their shoes to to then be able to apply that that sort of lesson. Because it's, it's really easy to be like, oh yeah, like this this startup was great when I used it, so it's obvious that it's going to be a winner. But you used it two years after they started. Right. How did they go from nothing to that thing that you used that you loved? Right. I mean, and yeah, like all software is kind of like that too. Although it's interesting when when like something comes out and gets like a really bad reputation like i don't know path do you remember the path launch you could only have like 50 friends and everyone freaked out about it path was the one that you were excited about no no somebody else but but it seemed really cool but yeah so you runs into these problems i mean i know i don't remember anyone liking path on day one then they like relaunched six months later and then it started to become cool. Okay. But I mean, that, the that good first news, though, is if no one really likes you and no one talks about it, then you could always just launch again because you really have nothing to lose. Yeah, I mean, Canvas, Canvas launched under a pseudonym multiple times before we launched publicly because we knew we could just keep doing that and get away with it to see what... Uh, and we didn't do like a big marketing push or anything, but like it was just like the whole time it was in development, it was live on a website somewhere. Yep. Because why not? You just gotta get the feedback. So we've all we've all worked um, in like new frameworks, new languages, like these these sort of like oh hey I made this new environment and now you have to rewrite everything that you used to like assume was handed to you. Um, and there's this weird trend there where like like so my my first experience with this was with Twisted where it's like oh okay using Twisted networking in Python therefore if you want a, a client for a new protocol you have to write it yourself from scratch. And so it, the, it, like, it attracted people who are interested in what was new with Twisted compared to regular networking, but it also attracted people who just want to rebuild core infrastructure. Um, like Golang is the same thing. Oh, you want a Redis client? Great. There's these two, or you could write your own. Eight other people have written their own. 
Um, and you just like, like, I feel like you get, you can get sucked into this trap of writing way too much. And a lot of people do, and you have to work with those people and they're usually not very, um, uh, like results driven or pragmatic. They're usually very like, uh, driven by the ideology of the new tool chain or the new framework. Well, or they're just doing it for fun because how many other chances do you have to write a Redis client that some people might use? You know? <laughs> yeah. an established one somewhere else. Yeah, it, I mean, it's pretty fun to work on open source projects where, like, the input and the output are known. Like, oh, I have this framework and it needs this library that does this thing, and it either does or it doesn't. Like, that's its one metric of success. Well, and if you do a good enough job, like, people will like yours better. And so it might be fun for people to really get in on the ground floor on something. Yeah, plus now we're telling everybody, oh, you want to get hired? Have a great GitHub page. Go contribute to oh, open yeah. source. <laughs> it's, it's very weird. And then, oh, you got hired because of your GitHub page? Great. You can't open source anything at this job, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the contradictions of something. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, before we, before we ended, I just wanted to talk. Uh, we, we usually start with, like, what's up in, in our respective lives in the last week. Um, so, so, Daniel, what have, what have you been just randomly working on very recently? Uh, let's see. So very recently, I've been uh, so on some of these orange trees. They've got a lot of. There's this vine that grows up. It's like uh, please don't be poison pond. oak. Uh, it's not poison oak, although it is. It's like kind of caustic. Uh, it's got like a milky white liquid that comes out of the vine. It's got these pod things. So you have to wear like full body protection. Uh, no, it's like it might just irritate your skin if you like really get covered in it, but. Yeah, because my, my dad was uh, like 18 or 19 and chainsawing, because he worked on a farm, and he was chainsawing yeah. and hit a, a poison oak vine. Oh, yeah, and just like sprayed it. Everywhere, every yeah. like in his eyes, oh, like, oh, oh man, awesome. so bad. Yeah, because it sprays the chips everywhere. Yeah, you'd go to a hospital today for that kind of thing. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, so there's this like pod vine, and it like grows up, it's like really invasive, it grows up over the top of the tree from the ground, just like wraps around and just starts dangling all these uh, vine things down. So I have to go down with a brush axe and, like, chop it all down from under the tree and pull up all the roots. And uh, I try and do about three trees a day where it's really infested, and then it buys me about one year before I have to, uh, you know, do it again. Although, actually, if I keep up with uh, spraying herbicides, it kills the small ones. So that's been my farm work. Uh, my programming work was uh, launching Hamlet and the latest pixel editor on uh, Monday this week and then touching some of those up uh, throughout the week. So that was a kind of a lesser known announcement, the pixel editor. Oh yeah, I did the pixel editor. I actually launched it Sunday uh, just I guess to practice launching things before I launched Hamlet. And uh, for Monday I actually had two of the top three repos on GitHub trending and CoffeeScript. So that was kind of cool. Nice. It was a uh, Hamlet, Adam, and Pixel Editor. <laughs> Congratulations on being Femto famous. Yeah, it was my 15 seconds of fame. I and mean, pretty soon it'll be like 15 milliseconds in the future. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've been, I've been watering my habanero plants every day. And <laughs> this is for uh, uh, homemade hot have? sauce. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna grow some habaneros, smoke them like you would a chipotle chili, and then grind it up into hot sauce. 
Um, so I'm just trying to get on your level here, Daniel, and I'm nowhere. Uh, yeah, <laughs> agricultural bros. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, my my work stuff. I've just been developing course content, but I really wanted to talk about this uh, this court case from like what today, yesterday, where um, the Supreme Court just overturned. A lawsuit basically saying over patents, what they said is you're not allowed to patent a generic idea plus computers. Like you're not allowed to say, oh, we're patenting this well-known financial method on computers. It's totally different now that it's on computers. And that should invalidate a bunch of bullshit patents. Retroactively? Yeah, anything. Anything today that has been granted that's a generic idea that also is just on computers is now invalid. It, it might have to be challenged, but right, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and there, they, they also totally like, possible on computers. Then you would probably be able to do it. Although the other thing is, like, it can't just be a generic idea plus computers. So you'd have to be like, here's how you do it on computers, and it's only possible on computers. Because okay. like part of the point of the patent is that you're sharing the methodology that is interesting, and in exchange for sharing this publicly, you get a short-term monopoly on the idea. And so a patent that literally tells you nothing about the world is not useful to society. So I'm, I'm super excited for that, but we'll, we'll wait to see. And the other thing I'm excited for is the trend. So like the Supreme Court wasn't hearing any patent cases for a while, and they've heard like five in the last year, and they've overturned all of them. Hmm. Um, so there's, there's a chance that this like new, more active uh, SCOTUS is going gonna, is gonna to end up like resolving some of the hard software patent issues we're dealing with right now yeah it's definitely gotten to a terrible place over the past few years with all the patent trolls and all that so it might be getting better might be getting better with any luck (laughs) jeff what have you been up to in the last seven days well i've been considering uh becoming a lumberjack for five years oh yeah you should uh, hang out I'll teach you everything. Uh, and then coming back to technology when everything, when when it has become the future that I want to exist. I'm sure that Daniel would do like a work share where you come and work and get to like live on his couch for free. Mm-hmm. Also, you have to take care of his kids sometimes. <laughs> and hack on uh, serverless architecture. Yeah, yeah also, also you have to write code for him. Basically, indentured servitude is really what he's looking for. Yeah, I'm trying to bring it back. <laughs> Got a bad rep. Speaking of that, I have an intern. <laughs> Speaking of intention, uh, I feel bad for your intern. No, it's not. It's actually um, so he's he's really bright. Uh, I didn't think I was gonna get this uh, intern because of me being sort of completely autonomous from DigitalOcean, but they they gave him to me anyway. And so I basically have him doing like open source like patches to open source projects that I haven't gotten around to. So he recently patched console to uh to kind of improve the initial like the first experience when you set up there's this whole like bootstrapping thing where you have to like start one of the nodes in bootstrap mode and then when you get to you know x number of nodes you have to restart that node out you know with bootstrap turned off is just a really annoying kind of initial user experience which could have been automated more or less and so i had a plan for it that i talked with them about doing and i just hadn't gotten around to it so um, when uh, Robert kind of came on and I gave him some other project and he finished that really quick, I was like, oh, here's this patch that we've been talking. And so I just hooked him up in IRC and had him like talk to those developers and he submitted a pull request like within a week. 
uh, it seems like a really great way to to uh, give give interns stuff to do is just you know give them give them a purpose to work on existing open source stuff. Um, so uh, that and I'm you know pl- plotting my huge array of projects that I I need to get done that are all kind of going to be coming together soon in in some form of massive project and then after that I'm just going to retire <laughs> so you're going to yeah <laughs> I have a vacation in uh, August I guess we both do huh? yeah Jeff and I are going to Croatia maybe, maybe I'll convince you to, to not become a lumberjack we need mm. more diversity in your um, anachronistic occupations um, I have also been playing with web components and I'm trying to build a plug-in architecture for front-end stuff. They're like Chrome Nightly or Chrome Latest only, right? I mean, there's polyfills. Okay. So, but for for my particular use, it actually doesn't that matter because it's not like a web app that has to run everywhere. It's actually like a web front-end for a server-side tool. So it's like most likely this sysadmin who's using it is probably going to be using Chrome. So. Cool. Uh, Daniel, before we before we leave, do you have any things to plug? I mean, I'm sure you want to talk about Hamlet just a little. Uh, yeah, so this Hamlet client-side templating, it's pretty cool. Check it out, hamlet.coffee. It's one of those <laughs> new TLDs. <laughs> I love, we were so upset when we found out that uh, bone.zone was taken. Oh, <laughs> man. Because that, honestly, <laughs> the best domain. But I got, I got fits.email, so I'm going to be timothy at fits.email. Which sounds terrible after I say it out loud, but yeah, a I'm lot of uh, a lot of new domains do <laughs> sound good in your head, and then yeah, it's like, you oh, say this it. is going to be a good idea. I mean, yeah. I think a lot of them, like, I'm not quite sure how many of the general population would know that Hamlet.copy is a website. Like, I guess it has a dot in it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I guess no one in the general population I'm trying to reach with it. So do do uh, I mean I think it's a file name. So I, even yeah. I have an adapter. Yeah. So yeah, like uh, I am clients and stuff. If you were to put Hamlet.coffee, it wouldn't turn it into a URL, would it? Uh, it depends on the client, I think. But, Twitter's pretty yeah. bad at it, for sure. If you add the HTTP though, they can usually figure it out. But I yeah, hope there's like so. a whole bunch of new domains that are kind of weird. But I keep thinking, like, I want to buy, but I don't know. Like, what's the point? It's just a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I try not to buy more than a domain a month. <laughs> yeah, and it's whenever I time. buy a domain and haven't used it in a year, I just let it expire. <laughs> I'm, I'm at two years, but I have the same policy. I should probably, I don't know. I, hate, I don't use any of my domains. I don't even know why I own them. I'm an idiot. <laughs> Uh, and on that note, so our next episode is going to be next week, uh, June 27th, same time, same place. And uh, who knows, maybe Daniel Moore will just be our guest forever from now on. It was great having you on. Oh, yeah, maybe. It was great being here. And uh, yeah, I'm Timothy Fitz on Twitter. This is Program on Twitter, Jeff Lindsay. Yep, that's me. Thanks for thanks for listening. We're on iTunes. If you haven't uh, heard yet, you can subscribe. You can uh, rate us if you want. Only if it's a good rating, though, please. And uh, yeah, thanks thanks for having you. And hopefully, uh, we'll come back next week. Yeah. All right. So now we're in the post show. 
Those are some weird sounds at the end of the show. I might cut them out. <laughs> you or or down tempo. Then I'll just slow him down. Really. Yeah. Just so he just sounds really crazy. Yeah. So the last second lasts like thirty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having you, and hopefully uh, come back next week. Yeah.